How are we doing this morning? Fantastic. My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors. I'm glad you're here. We are in week five of a series uh, written by James. And uh, the book of James is towards the back half of the uh, New Testament. James has a lot to teach us. He has a lot to tell us. James was a half-brother of Jesus. He grew up literally in Jesus' home with a perfect older brother. And yet, he did not believe Jesus was the Messiah or God. In fact, at one point, he even went to try to go get him because he thought he was crazy. But after Jesus died and resurrected, he appeared to James, and James became a believer. And as a result of that faith, as a result of that realization of truth, he began very quickly to begin to move towards action. He led the church in Jerusalem under incredible persecution. And he learned some things about trials. And that's where we've been for the last five weeks, um, looking at what James has learned about trials and what he wants us to learn from them. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or perseverance and let that have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete and lacking nothing. In other words, what he says is, look, you are not God. You are not holy. You're not even close to holy. Jesus is perfect and holy. You are on a journey led by the Holy Spirit to transform you from where you are to where he wants you to be. But you can't go there on your own because the things you have to go through to learn the lessons are painful and scary and require obedience and, and make you want to not be there. And those are called trials, difficulties in life. God will allow trials in your life so that you will learn to surrender, so you'll learn to put away your own flesh, your own selfishness, your own sins, and allow him to change you to be like Christ. And our life on earth is here so that we can go through trials, learn about ourselves, learn about our God, develop our faith and trust, and in the process be changed into something that we would never change into on our own. So he says, look, when you go through a trial, you have to persevere. Everything in you is gonna say, run, do it your way. Don't stay in this. He says, but if you will persevere through trials and you'll let God do his full work, you will eventually be complete and perfect, lacking nothing. You will be like Christ. Eventually, one day, he will transform you. We spent four weeks, look at this one incredible verse, choosing joy, realizing that we have a choice when things happen to us. We can see them as a horrible event that happens to us, or we can choose to see them as something God has allowed into our lives to change us. We have a promise of being spiritually perfect and complete one day. As we talked about it last week, if we can stay in God's gem of trials long enough, eventually we will be spiritually ripped. We'll be ready to handle anything. Not because we're strong, but because he's strong and we're surrendered. If you remember, we spoke last time about letting trials finish, letting them play out. We're going to continue talking about that today. It is the most important part of spiritual growth. If you want to grow to be like Christ, you have got to stay in your trials without exiting them. Because Satan is going to come along and offer a shortcut. 
The last thing Satan wants is for you to be complete, perfect, and lacking nothing. He will stop at nothing to keep you from being where God wants you to go. I know that because every time we teach on trials, craziness opens up. Satan doesn't like this. He doesn't want you to know that you have a choice. You can allow God to work through your trial and become perfect, lacking nothing. You don't have to do what the world tells you to do. Immature believers have not yet learned to persevere, to trust God, to work out everything in his timing. There are great rewards if we can persevere. If I could get one thing to you today, it's when you're in a trial, stay in it until God changes it. One disciple that knows a few things about being in trials and persevering through them is the Apostle Peter. And yes, he's my favorite, I know. He denied Jesus when Jesus needed him the most. After he said he wouldn't ever do it. Talk about going through a trial. You have betrayed the person you love the most and then they're crucified. And you don't know if you'll ever see him again. And you don't know what they were thinking of you when they died. He made a vow to Jesus to never deny him, and then he did it. When Jesus died on the cross, Peter most likely thought any hope of reconciliation was gone. He probably thought he was just like Judas. Except Judas had killed himself. He didn't know that he would ever get a chance to tell Jesus how sorry he was that he failed him. He didn't think there was a chance that God could still use him. So when Peter talks about persevering through trials, his words drip power from experience. And those are words we need to pay attention to. Look at what he wrote in his first letter. You can tell from this letter that Jesus taught Peter and James the same thing about trials. First, Peter reminds all believers that there'll be a day when we're perfect and lack nothing. 1 Peter 1, 3. Blessed be the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. To an inheritance, this is where we're going, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. In other words, holy. Kept in heaven for you. There is a destination for you and me. It's being kept there in heaven for us. We will, if we persevere through trials, if we allow God to take us there, if we have the faith in Jesus, we will recognize that hope. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Once you surrender to Christ, he guards you. He watches over you. He protects you. He, he, he guards your faith so that your salvation will be secure. He not only provides the way, he not only puts you through trials so you'll change, he actually guards you in the process. Peter reminds all of us where we're going and what's waiting for us. One of the keys to persevering in a trial is to remember that trials are necessary in order to get us home. Let me repeat that. Trials are necessary in order to get us home. 
That's why we're here. When you and I accept Jesus as our savior, he can say, okay, great, come home. But he doesn't, he leaves us here for two reasons. To go through trials and to perfect our faith, that's one. And second, to show others what happens when you have faith in Christ and you're going through trials. It's a witness. Verse six, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. There it is. Peter's saying what James said. A little while, while you're here. Notice how they resonate with what James is talking about. They both learned this from Jesus, who, by the way, went through some trials. And now they're both guided by the Holy Spirit as they write to us. You are grieved by various trials, Peter says. They're real and they grieve us. We struggle in them. They're not easy. We're impacted by what happens on earth. We're not in denial. We know how hard trials are. We know how challenging they can be. Trials can devastate us emotionally. Peter tells us that even in trials that grieve us, we can rejoice because we know where we're going. We know the treasure stored up for us when this life and these trials are over. But Peter also reminds us that no matter what trial we're going through, it's only for a little while. Verse seven, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, why are we going through trials again? To test our faith, to show us how strong our faith is, to show us areas where we need to improve. God's moving us from point A to point B, but he's including us in the journey. We go through trials and we learn. We learn all about persevering. More precious than gold, the genuineness of your faith is more precious than gold, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ Jesus. In other words, at the end of times, he will look at you and say, well done, come into my father's house. You have persevered the trials, you have run the race. Also, Peter, like James, remind us that we're being tested in these trials. They're not random. God's not sitting up in heaven going, well, let's try this on and see what they do. Every trial you're in, God has allowed for a purpose, and that purpose is to make you better. We are primarily tested spiritually. Trials are the only time when you get a really raw look at your faith. When you go through a trial, your faith becomes evident to you and to those around you. Peter tells us that our fire Tested, tried, and proven genuine is more precious than anything we can store for ourselves, including gold. Just as gold is tested, refined, and validated by heat, by fire, so are we. Most mature believers you know are the ones that have been through the most difficult trials and persevered. They've grown their faith. Trials test us by fire. The Holy Spirit is often symbolized in Scripture by fire. He uses these trials in our lives to break up the impurities in us, to bring to top the things that are pure, to, to melt away the things that are not. Our faith tested by worldly trials will prove genuine over time. When Christ is finally lifted up. It's our trials that make us move that direction. Peter, like James says, look, you're gonna have various trials. Don't be surprised. 
They're going to test your faith. You're going to be refined by them. You're going to be challenged by them. They're going to be difficult. You're going to want out of them. You're going to want to feel comfortable. You're going to want God to just fix everything. But he's allowed the trial because you need it to grow. It's the only way he can get your attention. It's the only way he gets you to stop doing what you're doing for you and start thinking about what you're going to do for him. Without trials, we never know the depth of our faith. You don't know the depth of a foundation until it's tested. Trials are necessary. In order to purify gold, though, you just don't take it and wipe it through the heat. You got to keep it in the heat for a while. You got to let the impurities come to the surface. You got to see what's wrong so you can get rid of it. If you don't stay in the fire long enough, the impurities never rise. You'll think you have gold and all you have is fool's gold. That's why we have trials. That's why we go through them. Our faith is the same. Many believers never see the faithfulness of God because they never stay in the fire long enough. The minute they're uncomfortable, they do whatever they have to do to get out. Our faith is based on that which is not seen. God told us in Hebrews, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. I've never seen it, but I know it to be true. As much as I know anything, I know that. That's faith. Faith is being convinced and having the conviction that God is present, God is active, God is not caught off guard, he's not out of control, he's not letting things happen to you that he's not gonna use. You don't discover that until you're deep into a trial. And then all you have is your faith, that's it. You're in the midst of something in your life and all you have left in your life is your faith and that's all you have. It tests your very foundation. Look at what Peter says in the next verse. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. You're saved by faith. You haven't seen him, but you know. You believe, you know, trials are gifts from God to shake us up out of our deception so that our faith can be tested and refined each time. Right now, our faith is based on what we've not seen, but rather what we've experienced through trials. You only know that because of the trials in your life. You only know you can trust God and depend on God because you've done it before. So Peter and James teach us that persevering through trials is what builds our faith and reveals our foundation. Remembering where we're going and who we trust allows us to get through any trial that God decides to allow into our life. So how do we persevere? Remember, James, look, you gotta persevere in the trial. How do we do that? Everything in the world, every advice we get from the world says, just get out, fix it, solve yourself. Do what you have to do to take care of you. As long as you're happy, you're good. Let me give you an example. Sadly, the most common example of exiting a trial that I see as a pastor. This example is rarely taught in church because it's sensitive and it's raw and it affects so many people. And that's why it happens so much to believers. I'm called to preach the word in season and out of season. And this is the best example I know of a trial. So here it comes. Right now, 
I know five Christian couples who profess belief in Christ who are contemplating divorce. And in 20 years of ministry, I have canceled, I've, I have counseled dozens. Same situation. From a scripture perspective, let me just cut to the chase. Divorce is never an option for Christian couples, period, it's done. That's what you wanna know, it's the truth. Straight out of scripture. They can separate, but divorce is not an option. Why? Because they made a covenant together with God. The scriptures tell us that they together joined together as one and then looked to Jesus and said, okay, we're in a lifelong covenant with you. Regardless, divorce is Satan's ultimate shortcut. Oh, your marriage isn't going well. Just get divorced. Start over. Do it again. Do find somebody else. It's their problem, not yours. You're okay. You're not. You're a victim. Hmm. You see, Satan can't destroy your marriage unless you invite him to do it. It's a covenant with God, with holy God. The two of you stood in front of a church in front of a cross and said, look, no matter what happens, we're together for life. And Jesus said, do you mean that? Yes, okay, we're in a covenant. Can't be broken. As marriages are strained and every marriage is strained at times, both spouses have a choice. They can persevere in the trial and allow God to grow their marriage and make it stronger the way he promises and by the way, absolutely guarantees to do. Or both can decide that it's easier and more convenient to just get a divorce and start over. And guess what? That trial's going to come up again. And sadly, Christian friends encourage their other believing friends to get a divorce. I'm stunned at how often believers in Christ encourage another believer to get a divorce. I can't believe it. If you're ever in the position of counseling somebody who's considering divorce and they're both believers, it's not an option. God has another plan. They may need to separate to be safe. They may need to separate to find themselves, to focus on God. Divorce is not an option. It's never a scriptural option and it's always a sin. The trial of a strained Christian marriages reveals quickly the foundation of both believers. Some are rapidly exiting the trial, revealing that their faith has little foundation. They've given up on God's ability to restore their marriage. They've given up on God's ability to change their spouse or to change their reaction to their spouse. The person in the world they love the absolute most of all at one point in their lives. And now they're going, it can never happen again. God can't do that. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, but he can't fix my marriage. Really? They know what God requires. They just don't care. They think their problem is with their spouse, but it's really with God. They either don't believe he can change their situation or that he will change it fast enough. People don't run out of love. They run out of forgiveness. And they run to selfishness. They don't want to persevere, and thus the world, sadly, and some believers urge them to just get a divorce. They don't stay long enough to realize that this thing is showing them the very crack in the foundation of their faith. They'll never see the restorative power of God in their marriage because they lack the faith to persevere. 
For some, a temporary separation allows them to get alone with God and work out the imperfections of their faith. Here's what I tell every couple. Your problem is not with your spouse. Your problem is with God. And sometimes you got to get apart from each other so that you can each focus on God, your relationship with God. Not change her, not change him, not make them, what am I doing, God? What do I need to do to make this marriage work? What do I need to change? What are you revealing to me about me? This is about me and you, God. If there's a problem in my marriage, I'm either not honoring my wife as Christ loved the church or I'm not honoring my spouse, my wife. One of the two. My husband, I mean. So the point is, something's wrong here spiritually. God, I need you to fix it. Sometimes the emotions are so raw and so painful that you have to separate for a while. I'm all into that. If you're going to separate with the purpose of getting alone with God so that he can change you and restore your marriage to where it can be and make it stronger and perfect and lacking nothing, then Godspeed, let's do that. But we separate with the intent of coming back together. goal is not divorce or permanent separation, but trusting that God will keep his promise. Here's the amazing thing. The scriptures are absolutely clear. If you persevere through trial, particularly a covenant relationship with God, he will restore your marriage. He will make it stronger and better than it's ever been. And you'll look back on this time and say, thank you, God. If you persevere. For believers, divorce is not giving up on their spouse, it's giving up on God. God tells us in scripture that he hates divorce. And it's within his will that every strained marriage gets restored. Matthew 19, four, Jesus speaking. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. You see, you're not in a covenant relationship with yourself and God. The two of you together have become one flesh who then made a covenant relationship with God. The two of you are in this together. You stand spiritually together. Therefore, he says, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Those words are in red. They're in red. Jesus said them. I've never, ever seen a Christian marriage fall apart when both spouses seek God's will with everything they have. And they commit to persevering through the trial. Not only that, but their marriage and their relationship with God is stronger and better because of what they're going through. And I realize it takes two people focused on Jesus to make that happen. You can't control the decisions or the sins of your spouse. You're responsible for your own. The reason is that marriages include Jesus. Married couples who are truly surrendered to following Jesus will never even bring up the topic of divorce because it's not an option. You cannot follow Jesus and file for divorce. Can't do it. To the men, you're responsible for being the spiritual leader of your home and to love your wife the way Christ loved the church. To the women, you're commanded to honor your husband. All couples go through trials. Every couple goes through trials. There are days you don't want to be married, I know. 
There are days you wonder, what in the heck did I do? I must have been out of my mind. This is an alien I'm living with. I get it. I know. But God always, always, always restores and purifies marriages that remain in and are tested by the fire of trials. See, here's the problem married couples don't realize. When you come together with God, he makes you one flesh. He then makes a covenant with you and he promises you the two of you will always be together and you will eventually come to be like Christ. Your marriage will become more holy. It'll become more surrendered. This person will be the most important person in your life short of Jesus. And you're going to go through trials and guess what? You're not going through them by yourself. You're going through them together because you are one. And married couples grow spiritual muscles through trials and together, if they persevere, they will see the restorative power of God. I don't care what's going on in the marriage. I've seen marriages that have abuse. I've seen marriages, craziness. But if there's two believers focused on Jesus, he will fix it if you persevere. God will do what seems to you to be impossible. Now, I chose a divorce as an example because it's so prevalent, we all know it. But it's no different than any other trial. We can pick any number of trials. Lacking the faith to trust God to overcome your addictions. Lacking faith to trust God to help you and deal with your finances. Asking God and trusting God to give you the power to persevere and forgive somebody. Asking God to let you stay in the trial long enough so you can finally get victory over your lust. Asking God to help you persevere in the trial so you can finally rid yourself of that anger you've been holding on to forever. Or to let go of your desire for revenge. We have an unlimited number of trials where God is asking us to trust him. I'm going to put you in the fire. I'm going to remove your impurities. I'm going to show them to you so you can see what we're doing. And you're going to learn in the trial, and you're going to be more holy when you come out on this end. And then guess what? We're going to have another trial later. We're going to build on this. That's what it means to be a Christian and what it means to be surrendered to Christ. He went from trial to trial to trial. The first step of trust is obeying him. Choosing to think like God and not like man. That's our goal. When you're in a trial, your first thought should be, I can't evaluate this from my perspective. I need to surrender to the Holy Spirit and let him do what he wants to do in this moment. God knew this would be hard. He knew it would be against our sinful nature. He knew it. So James, in the very next verse, says something that is life transforming in trials. Now he's just said, James, in the prior verse, that we must persevere in trials so that we can be complete, lacking nothing. What do you think he's gonna say next? Well, I think he would say, well, so persevere and be complete. But instead, he says something that almost seems random. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it'll be given to him. He went through persevering in trials, got that, and then he randomly starts talking about wisdom. Why does James seem to transition from persevering through trials to wisdom? 
Because anyone thinking about exiting a trial and not getting God's best for themselves lacks wisdom. How do you persevere through trials? Godly wisdom. In fact, a wise person would never let a trial not go to completion because of the promises Jesus has given us. Wisdom is what empowers you to persevere when your flesh says run. But we've got to be clear here. Most don't know what wisdom is. Wisdom is not knowledge and it's not intelligence. Wisdom is not anything that you can have of your own. You don't learn wisdom. You can intellectually understand exactly why you're in the trial and exactly why you want out. I see people all the time that rationalize to me why they're doing what they're doing. I get it. They want out. They want the pain to stop. They want the world to change. They don't want to persevere. They just want everything fixed. And Satan has given them a shortcut and by gosh, they're going to take it. But it ain't by God. because God says persevere. Wisdom is so much deeper. If you leave nothing today, nothing else, know the difference between wisdom and knowledge. Knowledge is information. Wisdom is application. Knowledge is comprehending facts. Wisdom is using those facts to manage your life. Knowledge deals with the theoretical. Wisdom always deals with the practical. Wisdom is WWJD applied. Not do I know what Jesus would do, what would he do, and have I applied it or not? Knowledge will help you think you understand the situation, but wisdom is understanding and surrendering to God in that situation. My best advice for any situation in your life is not what do I know to do. That will almost always lead you in the wrong direction. The question you should ask yourself, and I tell every teenager this, I tell everybody I counsel this, it's not what is what you know to do. It's not what you can get away with. It's not what's legal. It's not what you think, you know, you can explain. Here it is. Every situation where you're challenged, what is the wise thing to do in this moment? What's the wise thing to do? Not what's legal, not what's good, not what you want to do. What's the wise thing to do? Based on whose you are, where your home really is, the person you want to become and the place you want to go, what is the wise thing to do? It solves every situation you're ever in. You belong to Christ. You're a child of God. Your home is in heaven. You're being transformed in the likeness of Christ. You will soon be going home to him. Based on that truth, based on that reality, based on what you know to be true, what is the wise thing to do in this situation? Wisdom is knowing what Jesus would do and then doing it. It is what allows you to persevere in trials. James here uses wisdom not in some philosophical or mystical sense. With James, wisdom is the right to use your opportunities to live a holy life. We sang about holiness. Wisdom is applying that to your life. I know what God wants me to do, and I'm going to do it because I want to be like him. It's holy living. It's living with Christ 
like Christ in the will of God. Not wasting the strain of trials, but using them for the benefit that God offers us. Jesus or James's Jewish audience understood this clearly. It's a very common first century thought. Wisdom is living your life to honor God. It's doing what God wants you to do in every circumstance. It's not a head thing. It's a heart thing. It's not a wisdom of philosophical speculation. It's the pure, absolute surrender to God to live a life in accordance with his word. And the Jewish people have a word for it. Shalom. To be at complete and total peace with your God and with everybody else. Wisdom is knowing God's purposes in your trial. When you understand what God is doing in your trial, it's so much easier to persevere. Okay, God, I get it. Okay, all right. You put this into my life because it's the only way to get my attention. You've got my attention. You want things to change. Let me change so we can get out of this. But I'll end it when you say the lesson has been learned because otherwise I'm coming right back to this trial again and I don't want to be here. Now, wisdom also includes not being surprised when trials come. You should expect Satan to attack your marriage. You should expect your lust to be filtered and flowed through Satan. You should expect that stuff. Don't, don't look surprised when it happens. It's part of God's will for you. He didn't leave you here to have a wrinkle-free life. He left you here so that you would change. Peter says this, beloved, do not be surprised at a fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. There it is. We're to be tested and don't be surprised about it. As though something strange were happening to you. Let me rephrase that. It's an honor to be tested by God. To show your faith, to be in the trial and go, God, watch this. Look how much I've learned since the last time. Is your marriage strained? God is using that to grow your faith in him. Are you in the midst of a health crisis or challenge? God is using that to grow your faith in him. Are you struggling financially? God is using that to help your faith in him. Are you struggling with lust or addictions? God is using that to grow your faith in him. Are you struggling trying to find it in you to forgive someone? God is using that to grow your faith in him. Peter reminds us trials are not strange. They're gifts. Trials are part of your spiritual life like breathing is to your physical life. That's why he says, when you find yourself in trials, consider it joy. God considers you valuable enough to want to change you to be more like Christ. When trials come, they're not unusual. They are expected. They're necessary to grow our spiritual muscles. What makes somebody persevere through a trial when they don't want to? Having God's perspective on what's happening and participating in that trial spiritually. That's what wisdom is. The first requirement for such a belief is godly understanding. When believers go through trials, they need a special understanding to help them get through it. They need to ask God to show them what's going on. God, I wanna persevere. Can you help me understand what we're doing here? Wisdom is living out this proverb. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will straight your path. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. 
It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. There's not a better feeling than knowing that you're in the center of God's will, even if you're in the middle of a trial. James will write about the difference between earthly knowledge and God's wisdom. James 3.13, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly, it's unspiritual, it's demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is pure, peaceful, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The wisdom from above is pure and holy. The world's wisdom is unspiritual and demonic. God has an unlimited supply of wisdom for you and I. No matter what trial we're going through. Romans, Paul said it this way, Oh, the depth and riches of the, and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Why would God withhold the wisdom we need if we really need it? I mean, if we're going through a trial and God wants to teach us what we're supposed to learn, why in the world would he withhold that from us? Well, James tells us, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith without doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose he'll receive anything from the Lord. He's double-minded, unstable in all his ways. Do you hear the anger in that verse? God's wisdom allows us to persevere through trials. Because we understand their moments of growth. their moments of change. We want to get every drop of wisdom out of every trial that we go through. God, tell me everything I need to know, everything I'm trying to learn. I want to honor you and obey you. I want to stay in this trial, but to do that, I need help with your perspective. I'm not trying to get your perspective so I can argue with it or decide not to do it. I'm all in. I just want to know what's going on so I can learn. Too often we pray in the midst of trials not for God's wisdom and purpose, but that he would stamp his approval on our knowledge, our purpose, and the things we've already decided to do. James teaches us if you're going to ask God for wisdom during trials, you better ask with faith. You see, we don't serve a God who randomly likes to see us struggle. He's not up there going, hey, you know what? For no reason at all, I'm going to make this go into Frank's life. No. If you're going through a trial, God's allowed it and used it and hear this, it's the best thing he can do to you to get you where he wants you to go. Because God doesn't do second best. He is, however, not silent about why he allows it and what he wants to accomplish through it. Sometimes we treat God like he's a parent who says, okay, you're in timeout. Why? I'm not gonna tell you. You're in timeout, you just persevere. But what did I do? I don't, you learn from what you did. But I don't know, learn from what you did. Be quiet. Sit over there. You're in timeout. That's not the God we serve. He wants us to grow. He wants us to dialogue with him. He wants to have a relationship. He gives us wisdom as soon as we ask with one caveat. If you don't believe God has a purpose in your trial, 
If you believe your trial is all about you and not about God, if you approach God selfishly and arrogantly, you'll never understand why a trial has occurred in your life and it will seem like a random event to you. And it's going to keep going until you're broken enough to finally align with him. James says, ask for wisdom, but do it without doubting. Interesting, the word here, doubting, means to have one's thinking divided within himself. Not because of mental indecision, but an immoral or an internal moral conflict and distrust in God. You see, if you go to God in the middle of a trial, let's use the example we have and say, God, I don't trust that you can fix my marriage. So you, you just bless my divorce. No, I, I don't trust that you can do this. Well, then you're not coming to me in faith because I can change anything. I can make that person that you think is horrible suddenly the best person in your life again. I can do it if you'll stay through the trial. But most of us go to God in the middle of the trial and they say, God, tell me what we're doing and I'll decide if I want to participate. Otherwise, I'm taking the shortcut. James says the person who does that, who doubts God's ability or willingness for wisdom is like a restless sea moving back and forth that never moves anywhere and just churns. Doubting God's wisdom is literally translating the Greek as having one's mind or soul divided between God and the world. See, when it comes to wisdom, you're either all into God or you're not wise at all. Wisdom is not something offered to a non-believer. When trials come to that person, they will receive nothing because they don't have themselves surrendered to God. You won't receive what you're praying for because actually you're not asking God for anything that requires him. You've already decided what you're going to do. In the last verse we're going to look at today, James seems to move from very practical to almost poetic. Seems kind of random again. That's always an invitation in Scripture to dive deeper. When you read Scripture, ask yourself before you read the next verse, what do I think the next verse is going to say? If I was writing, what would I say? And then when they say something totally different, you're like, whoa. The Holy Spirit just took us in a new direction. That's your invitation to dive deeper, not to blow through it, okay? Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. What? Exaltation of the lowly, rich people. What does money have to do with any of this stuff? Most of the time in scripture, when they talk about riches, they're talking about spiritual riches, not physical riches. James moved from the concept of being double-minded to the root cause of being double-minded. In the midst of trials, there are two groups of people, those who are spiritually rich and those who are spiritually poor. But here's the interesting thing. The ones who are spiritually poor are the ones that get exalted because in that moment they realize they are not who they think they are and they're learning to grow. Brothers, also known as believers, approach God submitted, surrendered, and stooped. I'm in a trial, God. I don't deserve any more than I've already been given, but I have a heart that wants to know what we're doing so I can learn from it. God, would you please reveal that to me? 
as I surrender, as I make myself low, as I bow to you and trust you, would you exalt me enough to let me understand what we're doing? Others approach God as being rich, having things figured out for themselves, thinking they're in control, acting like they have God on a leash, not really appreciating all that God's already done for him, but demanding that he do more to give them what they've decided they need, demanding an explanation as why God has burdened them with the inconvenience of a trial in their hearts upset that God not only allowed the trial, but hasn't fixed it yet for them. They've decided selfishly to exit the trial and they want God to give them permission to do so and he won't do it. Trials fall on everybody. All of us right now are going through trials, coming out of trials, headed to trials, they fall on everyone. Jesus said, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Don't act like something crazy is happening to you. It's part of the human existence in a fallen world. When you find yourself in a trial, you're in good company. Those who are spiritually surrendered will be exalted. Those who are spiritually poor but worldly rich will be destroyed in the fire of their trials. The rich man will fade away in the midst of his pursuits because he's double-minded. God uses trials in our lives to keep us from being too focused on earthly things. He, he uses trials in our life to get us to look up at him once in a while. To look above our circumstances and seek God. James says we literally fall into these moments. That by going through trials, we can identify with Christ and his sufferings. Trials make every believer understand they're dependent upon God. Whether you're rich, poor, infant in the faith, spiritually mature, no matter what, we can all rejoice knowing that a trial brings us flat at the cross. Do you ever stop in the middle of your day, lay down on the sidewalk next to a busy street, gaze to the heavens with your thoughts completely on your need for God? Do you ever do that? Just like decide I'm going to lay down right here in the street and just look up? Yeah, me neither. Never done that before. And yet that's exactly how God got my attention last week. One minute I'm focused on all that's on my agenda, getting my task done, focus on me, and then I literally fell into a trial. One minute conscious, seemingly doing well, the next minute unconscious with people I don't know checking to see if I have a pulse. I woke back up on my back looking at the heavens, acutely aware of my need for God. It hit like that. Everything changed in a matter of seconds. I was so good at passing out, I did it twice. While waiting for the paramedics, people kept asking me if I was okay because I was smiling. Immediately upon regaining my thoughts, I thought to myself, consider it joy when you fall into various trials. I literally just fallen. Hit the deck twice. My first prayer was, God, you got my attention. Now throw me through this. You're in heaven doing as you please. I remember sitting on the ground, literally having a discussion with God while everybody else was running around. Funny how trials bring everything in the moment to total clarity, if you allow them. I sat, I leaned awkwardly, I didn't really sit, talking to God about the new plans he had for our day. I asked God to grow me through this and to use my new focus to share the gospel with the people I was about to meet at the hospital. While waiting for the paramedics, I began to think of all the things I'm thankful for. About nine hours later, I came back to the same spot, far more conscious, upright, full of about three liters of IV fluid, 
grateful that I had heat exhaustion and dehydration that could be corrected. I made a list of all the ways God was watching out for me. I passed out outside, not in my condo alone, in a place where paramedics and nurses could help me, where people could find me. Across from me was Julio, the guy painting the condo where I passed out, who was the only person anywhere near and happened to look over and see me. Immediately where are the prayers and the love of this church? Suddenly keenly interested in the functions of my kidneys, which had not been there previously. Part of my trial, which I was not expecting, is that I hurt my back when I collapsed the second time, hit my butt on the curb. For four days, I sat on the couch, unable to move, in a condo by myself, in Myrtle Beach, waiting for a hurricane to hit. I had nothing to do except talk to God. It was wonderful. Hoping that after the hurricane hit, I'd feel good enough to be able to sit in a car long enough to drive home. I had a great experience. I learned about the verse, be still and know that I'm God. I would not have learned that if I hadn't hurt my back. I let the hurricane move through. I thank God for the pain in my back because it forced me to keep focusing on him. I didn't like it, but if my back had been okay, I probably would have tried to find a way to play golf the next day. Been back out in the heat and damaged my kidneys even more. Often I would complain that I just want to sit for a few days and catch up and recharge. God answered that prayer for me through a trial. They told me in the ER that I lost 60% of my kidney function and was severely dehydrated with heat exhaustion and stroke. It's 95% humidity, 95 plus degrees. We're on a golf course with trees, you know, there's just no wind, it was terrible. Only time with hydration would tell whether my kidneys would respond, and they did. My first thought was, that's okay, my God's in heaven, he does as he pleases, he's got this. My second thought wasn't so spiritual. All that, and I still shot a 76. <laughs> yeah. I'm still a work in progress, but I'm getting there. Fortunately, all my kidney function returned. I'm learning to persevere and appreciate the testing of my faith. I learned a lot about me. Trial by trial, we all learn a lot about ourselves. Sometimes the best way for God to get your attention is to put you flat on your back, staring up at the skies. Unsure of your next breath or what's gonna happen next. You and I are going to experience trials, period. Not because God's unfair, but because he loves us too much to leave us the imperfect thing that we are. Now, right now is the time to decide in advance how you're gonna respond when you find yourself in your next trial. Literally, you can sit with God right now or later today and go, okay, God, I know a trial's coming, but I wanna do it differently this time. I wanna recognize it, I wanna be appreciative of it. I wanna consider it joy. I wanna trust you in the process. I wanna use it to reach other people. And I'm gonna trust you totally with the outcome because you've already promised me the outcome is this. You see, the reason I was ready to respond to my most recent trial was that I'd prayed about it that morning. God, I don't know what today holds, but whatever it holds, you hold it. So if things go haywire, I'm holding on to you. Help me hold on to you. Give me the power in the Holy Spirit to recognize what's happening and hold on to you. I asked God that when my next trial comes that I would recognize it and respond immediately in what I've been teaching. God has trials planned for your future. They could start this afternoon. You could already be in them. 
How you respond to them will determine the frequency and degree of discomfort that you experience. Why not decide right now to ask God to begin preparing your response? If you're a married couple, sit down today and go, divorce will never be a discussion in our household because as for me and my house, we serve the Lord. No matter what happens, no matter how tough it gets, we are not going to go through divorce. We're not gonna talk about it. We're gonna trust God to put it back together. We'll do whatever it is because our marriage is worth fighting for because it's a covenant relationship with Jesus Christ. Prepare yourself to ask the right questions when you're in a trial based on whose you are. You're a child of God and you chose to surrender to Jesus. Based on where your home really is, it's in heaven, not here. Based on the person you want to become, I want to be just like Christ. Based on the process of change, I want all trials to go to completion. I want God to decide when I've got every last drop of wisdom out of this trial and I've been transformed as much as he wants to transform me. And the place you want to go, I'm going home to glory one day. And then ask yourself, based on all that, what's the wise thing to do? And if you don't know, then ask God who gives wisdom to us freely if we ask without doubting. Let's pray. God, I thank you for trials. I thank you for difficult times. I thank you for things that rock our boat so that we'll look at you and maybe try to walk on the water. Keep our eyes focused on you and take that step of faith. God, I know that people are going through some very difficult, painful, raw, emotional things. But I also know that you've allowed them for a purpose. So God, help us to get onto your agenda. Help us to prepare in advance for We love you. We thank you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.